Hey, podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. I'm here with Matthias, and we're broadcasting again from Washington, D.C. For all the time that politicians spend talking about veterans' issues, we rarely get any sense of detail about what veterans' issues actually are, what are some of the things that they're up against. And so Matthias and I had the pleasure to sit down and talk with the Deputy National Legislative Director of Disabled American Veterans, Adrian Adezato. Uh, he's a Gulf War I veteran, and following that, he eventually made his way into veterans advocacy with this veterans service organization. And what he helps us do is, is really break down, first of all, the history of veterans advocacy in the United States, um, what veterans service organizations do in Washington and how they advocate for veterans. And then in the latter portion of the episode, we dig into some very specific policy areas um, that, that help us get a better sense of what it is exactly uh, that, that uh, he sees as veterans' needs right now. Um, we also cover some other stuff, like we start out with his career path and, and actually getting to uh, disabled American veterans, how that happened. It's a pretty interesting story. And then uh, we also talk about Gulf War illness, which is something that we really didn't know much about before before talking to Mr. Adesato. So uh, this is a great interview in order to get some depth and understanding about what veterans' issues actually are in the history of, of veterans' advocacy. Um, we are fortunate enough during this DC series, which has nine episodes, uh, to speak about veterans' issues or military personnel on, on three different occasions. And so if you want to keep going through this series and listening to more stuff like this, it's there. Anyways, uh, thanks so much, and we'll, we'll let Mr. Adezato take it away. out of Chicago in 89, um, and uh, went to boot camp in Orlando, uh, back to Chicago for my first tour as a, as a medic at the Great Lakes Hospital. Six months into it, uh, the Gulf War started heating up, got transferred out to California to serve with the Marines, because, you know, the Marines use hospital corpsmen in the Navy as their medic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I stationed out there, deployed in uh, 90, 91. Uh, the war happened real fast. Uh, that was over, came back, finished my tour in Great Lakes, and then my second tour ended up being with the same unit I served with in the Gulf War. I uh, was there till 93 and got hurt and uh, was medically discharged out of the military in 93. And once you, once you got out of the military, what did you what was what was your perspective on on how you wanted to move forward with your life at that point? Well, I mean, I, I guess uh, I should I needed I need to take you back to why I joined in the first place, which was really um, is a family upbringing. It was a okay. cultural thing where we were expected in my family to go to college, find our way to go about getting to college. There was no there was it was not an option not not to be in higher education so uh being first generation uh, in the u.s uh, we had no assets to speak of so military was the most um, deliberate way to get there 
and so I figured four years, what's four years? You know, I've got potentially seven or eight a year. So after getting out, uh, even though I was injured, um, I got back into school, which was the whole point of me <laughs> being in the military in the first place. So, right. yeah, I went to, went to school at uh, University of Illinois in Chicago, did math, get into math, and then end up being a math teacher. How that came about, wow. uh, and then got recruited by DAV. Interesting. So, 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 what was that experience like, just in terms of the recruitment process for for DAV? Um, well, was it was was it was it some kind of social connection? Did somebody reach out to you on the basis of your service uh, or your expertise? Yeah, uh, it's a little. That's uh, an interesting story when. When I started going to the university, um, I there like all like almost all state or federally funded universities, there is a veterans affairs mm-hmm. office, um, and you get help with your paperwork or any counseling and things like that. So I went in this office and uh, met this gentleman who happened to be a surfer, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the things I liked doing when I was out in California. <laughs> And we just, you know, we just hit it off. We became really good friends. We ended up living together, and he was going to college at the same time, so it was just economically viable, plus we um, had a lot of interest. And he ended up working for DAB, um, and uh, he was a service officer, which means you had to prosecute veterans' claims for benefits. And he would come home, and he would argue cases with me and I would tell him well you know that logic isn't right and I would I would um, get into these long debates about him about um, prosecuting claims and, and the logic he was using and so then he said well you should come work for DAV and uh, so they asked me to come out for an interview and before you know it I'm 17 years with them. Wow so I'm assuming that it started out as kind of like an informal argument between roommates initially. Oh, like yeah. get home from work, and he, he'd talk about some of the claims, and, yeah. and you'd respond. He'd say, come on now, this, yeah. this, that, and the other thing, or something like that. Am, am I right? And yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, it, it's when you are a, a veteran's advocate, you it's not a job you kind of take lightly. You know, even in the position I'm in now, when, when somebody wants to come work for DAV as a service officer, you're basically an attorney in fact. You are practicing law a very specific part of the law and this job doesn't pay a lot you are a committed individual uh, bent on changing somebody else's life for the better Uh, so you get very invested and very passionate about it and and sometimes you lose sight of logic when emotion comes into play and so yeah he would he would get very um, upset about how this federal agency called the Department of Veterans Affairs would decide claims uh, when it was clearly not what the law intended. Right. Um, so he would—he's a very passionate, very intelligent uh, individual. He actually ended up leaving DAV a, a few years later and works for a, a law firm now, um, helping veterans at the appellate level, which is okay. mm-hmm. two steps above. Um, uh, through the claims process for VA benefits. So, so, so I'm curious. You you, you mentioned you know he get 
if you get really upset about the way some of these claims were prosecuted, sure. that it wasn't done in the fashion that the law was initially intended. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you, what what does that mean for for people who may not understand sure. how this arbitration process works and, sure. and the ter- the determination is made? Well, I guess I'll start off with um, how the body of the law is supposed to operate. Generally, when you um, have a claim to to seek either restitution or make yourself whole because you were injured, it's generally adversarial. You know, I'm asking you to make me whole because you did something to me. In a veteran's benefits realm under Title 38, it is non-adversarial. That is the intent. In other words, the law first contemplates military service as one that doesn't allow for proper documentation. It's not like you're saying, stop firing at me, enemy. I need to document what's going on. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I got hurt. You know, I, I jumped in this foxhole. I twisted my knee. Ten years down the line, I'm going to have arthritis. Twenty years down the line, it's a total knee replacement that kind of documentation that normally happens in a private sector or in, in back home doesn't occur. So the idea that evidence that could be used to help uh, either build a case or prosecute a claim is can be non-existent. So this non-adversarial contemplates an extraordinary situation and requires a federal entity like the Department of Veterans Affairs to assist the veteran. Uh, to give them the benefit of the doubt, so to speak. Absolutely. In, in fact, the, the scale of justice is equipoise. In other words, if the evidence says, eh, it could be because of his service or it could be because of something else, the law says you have to give it to the veteran because of service. Mm-hmm. It's very deferential, which is... Um, again, contemplates this idea of wartime service or just military service. The law is constructed, as you mentioned, in such a way that it's deferential. But then there are there are people that need to essentially hold the, the actual government accountable for, for that body of law and the intent of that body of law. And so what you're saying is, is you were dissatisfied with some of the outcomes you were hearing just in these informal conversations with your roommate. Can you describe briefly what the what the complex of what they call VSOs or veteran service organizations are what they look like in Washington broadly and, and then you know your involvement in it let, let me rephrase that your knowledge of it before you became uh, a part of DAV mm-hmm. and then how you came to understand it once you did join DAV so um, my knowledge of VSOs was um, non-existent Mm-hmm. You know, VFW halls. I barely even knew of American Legion, which happens to be uh, the biggest, as far as membership is concerned, how many members are in that organization. So I knew about baseball and VFW, but that was it. Um, my involvement with DAV grew, as you had mentioned, about my um, dissatisfaction with how a federal agency was behaving um, in light of its mission light of what it is charged to do. Uh, So uh, I quickly brushed up on, you know, who the best advocacy organization was, and it happened to be DAV. 
which is why I had acquiesced to, to going for an interview. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had my certification, I had a job lined up to be a teacher, and I said, you know, I can always come back to teaching. But anyway, I, I got there, uh, I was offered a position, and uh, yeah, so when I started doing this, I was in the machinery. I was a agent mm-hmm. of an organization whose mission at the time was to build better lives for disabled veterans and their families. And that meant really any part of their life, whether it's psychosocial, financial, employment, um, educational, health. Um, so it wasn't really until after uh, I left that very strict scope of of my work to come up here um, into Washington DC doing the work that I do which is primarily health policy which is another you know it's a fancy way of saying I look after veterans and the health care that um, they need and in this realm uh, within the beltway of Washington DC you quickly realize the larger mechanics of society and where organizations like the DAB fits into almost the national consciousness. Um, and, you know, my view of things is a very personalized view. I, I see things from where I'm at, which is, you know, less than 1% of what everybody else sees in right. this country. Mm-hmm. And it's it can be very hard to explain um, what DAV does beyond its mission and how it affects federal policy and how it affects, you know, um, our country's fabric. Um, but what I, what I do know is this. The idea of a veteran service organization kind of came out of a need just like a lot of other organizations do. Um, and for a very long time there, and we're talking in the 19-teens, mm-hmm. uh, the country was engulfed economically, which means both socially as well as um, in the leadership of our country in wars from World War One, World War Two, It consumed a great amount of not only attention, uh, national discussion, uh, taxpayer money, it engulfed our nation. Um, it started with the Vietnam War where it really, um, there was this kind of break between the, the social contract that was first started by the Puritans, mm-hmm. you know, when they established themselves and said, you know, if somebody gets hurt fighting the, the Native Americans and we will take care of you and your family because you you volunteered, as well as Lincoln's, you know, declaration uh, to care to take care of veterans and their families and survivors. You know, that first break really, um, I think, started a series of a series of events, which has kind of led to where we are now. Um, so, so do you perceive that break as as 
almost a divorce of two different realities in in the country because from if if i understand you correctly the the break that you're identifying with is the degree to which like you said war engulfed american society in the country generally speaking so it wasn't just the people who were actually doing the fighting but it was the people back home who were suffering under rations or who had to take jobs in factories to compensate for the missing labor force. Is, sure. is, that, is, is that, am I yeah. understanding you correctly? Yeah, yeah. So in World War One, World War Two, you know, everybody was at war. Right. You may mm-hmm. have been at home, you may have been civilian. Right. But when you're selling bonds or, or saving tin cans or, or rationing, like you said, food, um, and everything was kind of geared towards a war effort, everybody was involved. Mm-hmm. Um, when Vietnam came around, it was not the major part of the deliberation in Congress or the news media. Although it was a an, an, an constant drumbeat, it was not all-consuming. Right. You followed up, you know, so the Korean War was in between World mm-hmm. War II and, and Vietnam. And then you had from Vietnam small skirmishes and then the Persian Gulf and then now um, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, so the break between <clears throat> World War II and Vietnam is is a little more distinct in terms of the Korean War, which is often referred to as as the Forgotten War. Mm-hmm. That break did it did it start to to evidence itself in the Korean War, and and also did it have something to do with the new nature of war, where where you have this um, global mechanism, or at least you know we're fighting under the auspices of the global mechanism, the UN, um, and we're there for ostensibly a police action. Uh, quote unquote, and, and and did the manner in which the government was forced to minimize, um, for political reasons, what we were actually doing in Korea affect the the popular understanding of war? Or is that is that not necessarily? I, a, I don't think it was the right conception. I, I don't I don't think I would agree with that description okay. of the okay. Korean War. I think the Korean War was is kind of like a remnant. I should say that. The perception of the Korean Wars is kind of like a remnant of the World Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, it was still very much a ground war. It was still very much um, they're there and we're here. Um, plus, a lot of the service members in the World War, especially in World War II, were were in the Korean War. Right. And remember that the number of people involved in World War II s- still was largely in in that part of our country where they were influential, either in in Congress or in media, to be able to still have this affinity about um, the, 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 the effort that the country has to put in to sustain service members, mm-hmm. you know, that are, are um, uh, soldiers when they go off. In the Vietnam War, you know, there was a, there was a, a break. There was a disagreement, basically, um, with the Vietnam War between the people that elects the individuals to declare war, right? Mm-hmm. There was a, an undeniable disagreement, and I think um, that break is kind of what... So let, let me, if I can push forward a little bit, oh, so yeah, to yeah, give yeah, us a little please, bit of context. Yeah. When you go around the country today, you have a lot of people saying... To soldiers, service members, you know, thanks for your service, even veterans, thanks yeah, for your service. That's, that's how we started out this interview. Yeah. Right. So, 
you know, there that break is part of the fabric now where we have to we have to um, kind of be pragmatic mm-hmm. about national defense. There are people who go to war who we send to war, and there are people that decide to go to war. And we kind of separate the two now because of the Vietnam War. We associated both together, which was completely, mm-hmm. I guess, wrong. We're making judgments on that now and saying that was not the right thing to do, to treat service members this way. They, that was... Yeah. That was not an all-volunteer force like we have yeah, today. Right. Conscriptions was, right. that was it. You know, these people weren't asked to go to war in Vietnam. Very few people volunteered. And um, so that's, I think, one of the major differences between right. how we see things now and how things were perceived then. And and I'm curious, um, what for you, for you, given your line of work, what what do you see as the immediate consequences in terms of policy? Because I, you know, I assume that that that's really what 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 motivates your work is in addressing some of those consequences and in making sure that that they don't have a negative effect on veterans' outcomes in their lives. Sure. Yeah. So I mean that. So one of the things that we have to keep in mind is about history being prelude. When we, when our organization first got started, it really was, and the, uh, historically, at the time of the country where you know the, the Veterans Bureau was first created, um, wh- what happened? What happened was after the World War, First World War, the economy was tanking. A lot of people were in service. They need to. They needed to rejigger the economy. And they had a whole bunch of people that um, that didn't know really much else but fight, and it's the same phenomenon in World War II. In fact, that's what gave rise to the GI Bill. But the point was, the country said was saying, "Look, we've got all these hurt uh, veterans. You know, what are we going to do?" Well, each agency was charged kind of with doing something to affect certain domains in their life to make it a little bit easier to, for them to become citizens again. It was magnified in World War II. Um, because of all these desperate agencies not really talking to each other, which is kind of this, like you can almost say that today, yeah. um, the Veterans Bureau was created. And it was created under really, uh, it had a really bad history. I mean, the first director was fired because of corruption. Uh, so. You know, there's a lot of there've been always a lot of controversy in veterans benefits and veterans support and services, but the VA as we know it today has always survived and not only survived but come out the other side better for it. Mm-hmm. It's a very painful, very public, very um, very real journey that this agency goes through mm-hmm. before it becomes um, this country's answer to taking care of veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so, so through World War uh, One, World War II, we came together as an organization and said, you know, we got to do something, this bonus march thing where mm-hmm. MacArthur and, and some other uh, um, generals came plowing through the, the, the sea of veterans that were waiting for their money yeah. that they were promised. Yeah. 
uh, became really kind of like a rallying cry, a, gal a galvanizing event where organizations started to say, you know what, that's it. We're done. We're done with what policymakers have been saying they will do. You need to start putting action to your words. And so the Department of Veterans, Veterans Administration was born. Um, so the first major flashpoint um, after the First World War is this Veterans March in, I think it was like 1932 or 33. Mm -hmm. it, at what point do the, does the, the sort of complex of veteran service organizations start? Is it there uh, in, the, in the history of, of this, um, in, in the history of advocating for veterans? Is that where, where the VSO um, complex begins? Generally, it's after a conflict. Everybody will have their own theory about this, but it's really... You know, individuals who have gone through fire together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Coming out the other side, you're a changed person. But the, the society that we live in is not the same. In other words, we have a hard time. When I first got out, I had a hard time kind of operating in the civilian world. It's not structured. They're, the rules are almost discretionary. <laughs> you know... <laughs> Meeting at eight o'clock isn't necessarily meeting at eight o'clock, you know. So it's a different world, and I think um, the the social aspect of or these veteran service organizations were the primary calling. They all of these groups kind of came together because there was a need, whether it's personal or social, and um, and that's how our organization started. It actually started from. I, I want to say it was like a mechanics training wow. institute yeah. where, and it was serving specifically disabled veterans. They were trying to um, tr train them uh, to to move beyond, to adapt from their disabilities to become an economically viable, which w is what you have to be in this country. Yeah. At what point? At what time historically? Teens, nineteen, nineteen, or something. Oh like wow! That. Okay, so this goes way back. Yeah, yeah. The next year was, you know, like the founding year, nineteen twenty. Yeah. Uh, after twelve years of being an advocate for veterans, uh, we were chartered by Con officially were recognized by Congress as a service and advocacy organization mm -hmm. in thirty two, and so you know our primary duty at the time was the economic, the economic malfunction of yeah. a person right? yeah. and trying to make make them you know um, not only be economically viable but be a, an active member in society mm -hmm. um, and so our organization gave them a place to come together either to to talk about how others did it you know how are you doing this how are you dealing with that and sometimes it was just a coming together and saying man I remember when mm -hmm. You know, and it's almost like what we call peer counseling now. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And it, it's not necessarily a medical model, but it's very therapeutic. Wow. Well, it's a community-based model. Yes. And, I mean, from, from, from what I understand you saying, in just in terms of the overall structure of the military experience, especially when in combat, is that that's how you interact as a body, mm -hmm. is through this sense of, you know, I'm there at 8 o'clock, you're there at 8 o'clock. Right. And, and we're there together and, at and the it, same time. And it's deeper than that. Yeah. When you're in war, your guy, your guy, your buddy, your and today your 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 female counterpart, they've got your hands. They've got your life in their hands. 
that's a very you know the trust fall is one thing yeah right yeah this stuff can kill you that's a whole different level altogether and not a lot of people get to experience that Mm -hmm. right and and understand exactly and and you know empathy only goes so far yeah and passion compassion similarly but it has to be directed and so that's what we do we direct either our members passion focus or compassion as well as the public who is interested in making sure veterans are taken care of and we kind of focus that um, to change certain things to make uh, you know veterans lives and their families lives a little bit better you said when when you came out of the service you had a, a very little understanding um, with the exception of maybe VFW and, and the American Legion mm-hmm. um, about veteran service organizations and sure. um, what does your organization do in order to reach out to veterans that are that are coming out of the service um, and, and need your need your services so our communication plan yeah yeah our outreach and communication plan well you know it depends on the group we're trying to reach um, our organization in order to be a member of our organization you have to have been injured there's injured in military service. There's a couple of ways to define that. One, strictly by law. And there's uh, 3.2 million of those veterans. And there is another more uh, open definition, which is our definition. If our service officers out there in the field believe that your injury, your illness, was due to military service, that... Um, individual determination allows you to join mm. um, because as we know the VA doesn't always make the right, right. decision right. so and so what does that put the number at you said 3.3 3.2 is the base yeah. that we consider is the number of um, uh, people who, who the VA has designated as injured because of military service so it could be much bigger you know a lot of veterans even today a lot of veterans in the rural areas, they don't know that they have mental health conditions. So, so the number yeah. could be more. In yeah. other words, um, it, it's as they come in. So, I'm 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 curious. You you described uh, starting out with the, the DAV as an agent in terms of just being very present in people's lives and, and doing kind of the me- mechanistic aspect of the service that your organization mm-hmm. provides, sure. right? And and then you transition to Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, was there anything specifically that compelled you to come here and to and, and to gear your efforts more towards the policy advocacy aspect of your organization, or is it just something where, you know, some people that you, some of your colleagues, maybe some of your hires up, reached down, reached out to you and said, "Look, uh, you know, we think that that you can really be effective in this role. Can can you come give us a hand in Washington?" Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Um, I was asked to come up. Um, Onto legislative staff and put on the health health side of our of our department. I mean, a, a little bit of background, you know, being a medic and all that, but I wasn't really clear as to why I was asked. I think I was doing a good enough job at the local level for them to take notice. But yeah, I, I didn't seek it out. Mm-hmm. They, they actually asked me. And, and, you know, you've been doing it for, for what, for 17 years now, you said? 15. 15. 15. 15 so two years. years two years as an agent before transitioning to the legislative. Right. The yeah. legislative side of it. And then, so clearly you took to the work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's all consuming. You know, yeah. it, there's one thing, you know, when I, 
when they asked me to come up, I said, look, you know, there's a couple of things you need to know. One, you need to use me while I'm single because <laughs> when I have a family, my whole, you know, like Conditions. My, yeah, no, I mean, you know. It's, These are your terms. Your, your paradigm shifts. Yeah, yeah. Course, right? Your, your values and your goals do not completely align anymore with the organization necessarily. Yeah. Right. Know, that's the tension between work and life. And I said, you got to keep me challenged. If I'm not challenged, I will find other challenging things to do elsewhere. Have they lived up to that end of the bargain on the challenge? <laughs> yeah. Yes, they have. <laughs> you know, it. this work is... The work that I do... So the work that I do is generally... Uh, you can call it almost three or four departments. You have government relations, which is relationship with um, policymakers, that's Congress, and, uh, and the federal agency. You also have to do um, policy work, which is subject matter expertise. So you have policy, government relations, you have communications, you have to harness um, your advocates to um, express their their opinion and send messages to these to both Congress and the executive branch about um, how things should be. Um, and then you also have um, uh, grassroots, which is that's a whole separate entity. You know, you have to feed your advocates. You have to make sure that you're in line with what they believe is important and that you're affecting change. Um, so, uh, you know, that's one, that's one department. We do yeah. all those mm -hmm. things. So there's more than enough work at any one point during the day. If you don't mind us taking advantage of the of the extensive knowledge you have of these issues, being in the, in the, in the role you're in. As he's passing me $50 under the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Not for the record, for the record. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm actually so so in in researching for this interview, we came across something um, that we think's you know really important to talk about, and that we had very little knowledge of awareness of, which is go for illness. Um, we assume our listenership uh, would be interested in this and doesn't yet have this knowledge, and and so basically, could, could you start by defining what go for illness is, and and the difficulty of diagnosing um, the condition, hmm. and Getting veterans, um, getting veterans the resources they need to deal with this, and getting them compensated for for um, this sort of um, disability. Sure. Um, so, uh, Persian Gulf War illness is, I guess we're going to go with a clinical. Yeah. I guess a clinical yeah. term. There, there are two or three main definitions of Persian Gulf War illness, but the gist of it is. Uh, is that a service member who uh, served in the Persian Gulf War suffers from some kind of physical impairment that is not easy, easily explainable as to why they have that impairment. And it and has to fall into certain categories. Um, and if any of your listeners are clinicians, you can already clearly understand the problem with 
um, veterans who are claiming Persian Gulf War illness mm-hmm. and getting the support and benefits that they need. As a clinician, you are required to diagnose, not necessarily understand the etiology, the, the pathology, mm-hmm. why it came about and, and why the impairment came about, but you have to understand the mechanisms of why it's occurring and, mm-hmm. and how to treat it. Mm-hmm. The law requires that a veteran prove that their condition is medically undiagnosed. Okay. You not only have to prove that it is an undiagnosed illness, but you have to go to a clinician whose primary duty is to diagnose a condition. Wow. So you're... Yeah, so that's you a have direct to... conflict with the spirit. Well, so, it's a direct conflict of the plain language of yeah. the law. So if a, if a, if a veteran of the, the, the first Gulf War, so, so when we speak about this, just to be clear for our listeners, we're talking about um, the first Gulf War that occurred in 1991. Mm-hmm. And if they suspect that they are experiencing some of the symptoms of Gulf War illness, um, how do they... How do they you know, acquire the knowledge and the know-how to navigate the system and, and try to appeal to the VA for um, for claims for this issue um, without without sort of being a detriment to their own cause. Because if they have to go to a clinician, that you know, you can't expect every veteran to have the know-how to, uh, on how to navigate the system on that. So how how do they navigate that system, or how do they start that process um, once they suspect it? Sure. So. Um, I, so if I understand your, what you're asking me, I think what I would tell uh, this veteran to do is come to a service organization. Don't, mm-hmm. go, don't go to VA first. Okay. Um, simply because VA is kind of bound by the law, which as I just explained is, yeah. is, <laughs> is not worded, worded well, um, and we're going to help them navigate it. Mm-hmm. You know, there are... There are ways to get a veteran the help they need without going through the front door, especially when the front door is a revolving door, <laughs> which is what the personal yeah. for illness um, claim language is really about. And so our service officers, DAB, VFW Legion, we, we all know how to kind of navigate that. I would argue that our service officers are better because they go through, like, I don't know, like every 16 months they go through a training program and Mm -hmm. and it's a lifetime you cannot be in the field and not go through this continuing education program that our organization has Um, it's pretty extensive I've seen it Um, so anyway they they need to come to a service organization first and we will kind of walk them through what the process is supposed to be like and what the process could end up being like in reality right so that they understand because there's one thing that we have to first we have to first acknowledge that these veterans are probably already frustrated right Mm -hmm. they have these impairments that the medical community cannot get a handle on Mm -hmm. Um, and i say this with a certain amount of 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 uh, reality because um, there was a study done i want to say two or three years ago that basically said its its basic message was that veterans who are suffering from Gulf War illness, there's about 250,000, quarter of a million of them out there still, 
is that they have their health hasn't gotten any better. Mm-hmm. Um, at at most, we can expect their impairments to have remained the same. I can't tell you how frustrating that can be. Yeah, being a young man or woman, getting out your twenty twenty one, and being sick for the better part of your life and not having gotten any better. Right. So these are the veterans that are coming seeking help. We have to acknowledge that they've been fighting a lifetime. Uh, and that frustration carries over when, when they come seek for help. What is it about that war uh, that, that caused it? Uh, we are talking about probably the, the prophylactics that they were given okay. to protect them against oh. sarin. Oh. There are, uh, There is a very specific cohort of veterans who were exposed to chemical agents when they blew up dumps like in Tennessee yeah. and all that. Um, so those are known exposures. Mm-hmm. I think the problem here is the exposures is unknown. So, you know, when, you, when, when we draw conclusions in our lives, we have a cause and effect, and we kind of have to rationalize the linkage between these two events. Right. Well, the problem is with Persian Gulf War veterans, there is simply they're ill. Right. We don't know the the cause, nor can we rationalize the link. That's mm-hmm. the biggest problem. With um, herbicide expo Agent Orange in Vietnam, uh, yeah, we have an agent. Yeah. We have Agent Orange or pink yeah. or blue or whatever else that they used over there. Right. So they can, when they look at determining whether your illness is because of military service, they can look at exposures to to the same chemical compounds in Agent Orange and do a population-based study. Unfortunately, it takes decades to do that, but nonetheless, you have it. You have some validation yeah. that I am suffering today because... Right. Right. Same yeah. thing with mustard and... and to some extent, radio, radiogenic diseases in World War II, but the Persian Gulf War veterans now. Yeah. I mean, it's almost the same thing for burn pit yeah. uh, exposure for the, Gulf, for the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans or Iraq veterans because yeah. of, or, yeah. You know, there's all this chemical that was being burned in this huge pit, and these men and women were living right next to it. Mm-hmm. And as you know, there's really one season over there and it's the windy season of the dust storms and so that it get carries into their living quarters and anyway for yeah. them they don't know right yeah. and that's part of their frustration right. we don't really know we're not completely validated right and uh, i mean as i understand it even with something like agent orange where where you have this sort of cause and effect relationship it was hard enough to get to get benefits recognized for for people who are um who are affected by agent orange i mean i I don't know if i read this correctly but i think um a couple years ago when the va scandal happened and and there were these really long wait wait times and Mm -hmm. backlogs it was partially yes it was it was the the soldiers returning from you know iraqi freedom and and enduring freedom in in iraq and afghanistan but it was also um the fact that they had uh, made it available for agent orange um people to get benefits for that is that correct so let's 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 do a little bit of yeah clearing here. Yeah, yeah. So the VA is roughly three independent administ not three independent but three linked administrations: mm-hmm. Veterans Benefits Administration, the Veterans Health Administration, and the National Cemetery Administration. Okay. 
what you had described as a confluence of, of waiting times for two different sets of benefits. Okay. A claim for benefits is like Agent Orange, Persian Gulf War illness. Mm-hmm. The other wait time you're referring to was the Phoenix waiting for care for your appointment okay. for medical care. Um, so let so let's just understand there there are two phenomena here there are two right. administrations in which waiting was a problem right so are you talking about the claim for benefits yes um, what happened is uh, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans are filing claims now that are far more complex than in the Vietnam era mm-hmm. um, the reason I think. One of one of the reasons for that is because the law has changed um, over the years since the Vietnam War, even with the Persian Gulf War, to where they are now having to claim very specific conditions. Because if they don't claim it, a year later, that that trail of evidence goes cold, and it's mm. far harder to prosecute. So claims are far more complex for these younger guys and gals or the newest generation of veterans. Mm-hmm. On top of that, they did um, the, uh, I think it was Secretary, was it Principi maybe? Or is it McDonald? I can't remember. Agent Orange was an expansion. In fact, the decision was is always made by the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. And when they make this decision, it's based on scientific literature, studies. Mm-hmm. This is a high standard. It's a very hard standard to meet. But that same high level of standard is what um, what allows us to defend this compensation system. It's not just given out nilly willy. It's very it's it's very hard to get a condition to be considered uh, a presumptive condition. If you if you serve in Vietnam. We assume that you were exposed to Agent Orange, and because of that, if you have these conditions that we know are associated with it, then you are presumed to have that condition as because of military service. So this decision opened up a whole a whole set of benefits that veterans had been suffering from all these years that are now filing claims. So you have a confluence of events on the benefits side. Um, on the healthcare side, that's a whole different matter altogether. <laughs> Do you really want to get into this? Well, so, sorry to I, sorry to conflate no, no, no. the two. I, uh, no, 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 no. no. We, we, we want to go here. To, yeah, okay. we absolutely need to actually. So one hundred percent. Let yeah. me. So on the healthcare side, it's really the the complaint was, I'm waiting too long to be seen. So the question was, well, how? What's the magnitude of this? How how many people are we talking about, and how long are they waiting? Well, we know how many people. That's easy to find out. How long is a little bit more complex. So when I call you, I'm a doctor's office. I'll say, hey, I'm Matthias. Yeah. I see you want to be seen by a cardiologist. Uh, when would you like to be seen? And you give, say, June or whatever. You say, yeah, yeah in, a, in two or three weeks yeah. or whatever. Okay, great. Well, one of two things is going to happen. One more likely than the other, especially if you're from Boston. <laughs> two, three weeks. Let, let's, let's look at two, three months from now because, you know, our doctor is very busy. Um, the Merritt-Hawkins survey will show that. Uh, 
that the times for medical appointments, especially for specialty care in even urban areas, is very, very long. In a place like Boston, too. In a place like Boston, exactly. So then you have these uh, members of Congress and the media saying, oh, foul, that's, that's not right. Well, that's the reality. We don't have enough doctors to treat the population that we have. This is not news. This has been complained about for the last, you know, decade, decade and a half. Um, so now we have created a situation that we're not really sure how to measure wait time. Couple that with the politics of it, the, the appearance of it, of wanting to be yeah, the so bot. Stand behind our right. Yeah. We need to. This is not right. I'm, I'm going to be a champion. Um, and and then the media, you know, perpetuates it. Yeah, right. So, um, so we have a really bad mixture here, and really very little data to inform policy. Right. So so I have a, I have a question just. At a very at a very basic level, and I and I and I get this sense from just listening to you speak about about the work that you do and the work that you've done for for fifteen years now, is that on one hand, you're dealing with the challenge of the 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 strict technicalities and the mechanics of the law and how do you and you know what what is a clinician's definition? How do you conceive of this? How do you conceive of that? And that's complicated enough, right? Right, and. What I'm hearing is also this just, it's the difficulty and how emotionally taxing it is to have to turn around to people who have received a commitment from our society that they're going to be taken care of and you don't really know what to tell them. And you have to you have to help them manage their own frustration. Like you said, you know, people coming out of the military in 93 or 94, 20, 21 years old who have been sick for almost 25 years now, if not 25 years, and their condition hasn't improved. Yeah, that's yeah. there's going to be a whole lot of anger there, a whole lot of trauma and just sadness and despair. And, all, and that, that seems like a, a huge challenge as well for, for your service organizations, above and beyond the basic politics of it. Mm-hmm. And, and how, how do you guys go about supporting each other in that? And, and how do you communicate, how do you try to communicate that to, to the population? Because, you know... I, I don't know what to say in terms of uh, how, how, do you, how do you depict it? How do you, how do you present it? So, so that's a good question, right? I think, I think the first thing that we as an organization have to be careful about is to describe the phenomena that's in front of us accurately. You know, we don't want to sound the alarm bells when, when it shouldn't be sounded. And we need to be mindful of, of of our advocates and and their passion and, and their drive and their wanting to help. We have to be very careful about that and not abuse it. So you know, I guess there there are, two, there are a couple of ways we can do this. The first thing we can do is um, uh, kind of do an environmental scan of what's going on and and use that as a baseline to inform our members or, or advocates. Um, that way, with an environmental scan, we all have kind of, we're all reading off the same page. We first have to agree of to what's, you know, what we yeah. both see, because if we disagree, then it doesn't matter what answers we come up with. 
to solve the problem or to make the situation better. Um, and I think that is the biggest challenge. Um, you always hear in the news cycle with politicians wanting to find common ground, and that is exactly why. Because if you don't have something in common, there's nothing to build off of. So that's critically important. But when we have to go to a veteran and say, look, you know, I believe you. You know, I believe you have a case. Um, but this is what claims work is. This is what it is like to um, try and get what is entitled to you um, by law. It is a fight, and we have to prepare them for that. And for the most part, I think our service officers are very good about that. You know, we, we, if time and again, even when I first started as a service officer, the first thing that I do is I sit down and say, hey, here's, what, here's what's to expect, okay? Um, it takes a year and a half to decide a claim. Uh, it needs these things, X, Y, and Z. So the first thing that we need to do is gather all this evidence and, and kind of walk them through it so that they have a picture of what is to ex what they can expect. Because when you know, I mean, it's frustrating to stand in line not knowing why it's taken so long yeah. for the guy at the counter yeah. to do their business. Right. Right, or gal. So, you know, knowledge helps attenuate that frustration. Not to say that it's a cure-all, but it right. helps them um, understand the situation. And so you, both of you, as as their advocate and, and the veteran, can stand side by side as they walk through this journey of, of getting benefits and services. Um, so I think that those two main things, depending on audiences, mm -hmm. I guess, are the, are the two main things that we as an organization have to do. Um, and then... Um, yeah, I, I wanted to shift into into some of the ways that you advocate for legislative solutions to fix the system itself. You mentioned a shortage of doctors, and in particular, I know you've spoken about a, a shortage. So the the um, the VA population tends to be, uh, at least right now, a little bit older. So mm -hmm. about half of the veterans are over sixty, um, and there's a shortage of geriatricians, mm -hmm. um, and then. And then also, um, the population tends to be a little bit more rural, and so oftentimes it's hard to um, make the services available enough sure. uh, for the people who really need them. And so what are your legislative priorities, or, or what are you working on as solutions to both of those problems? Very good question. So um, let me tackle the human capital aspect part mm -hmm. of it first. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we have been trying to trying to do is grow the number of, as you call, geriatric or the aging uh, focus of uh, studies for clinicians. Mm -hmm. So we as an, we have actually are part of an advisory, federal advisory committee for geriatrics, research education and clinical uh, centers across the country. And what that does is it allows for residents to come through this program to have a geriatric focus um, because the body mechanism of an aging individual um, is very different than one that is in their prime or even, you know, who, would you send your, I equate it to this, would you send your kid to a doctor or a pediatrician? 
pediatrician. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so because the number the the population of that the VA is treating tends to be older, we're trying to make sure that their their clinical competence to treat older people and to understand the mechanics of being old um, is there. So uh, that's one way. Another way is. Um, Another way is making sure that VA has the money to entice people uh, to train either as a geriatrician uh, or just to expand a number of slots to go through this geriatric-focused uh, um, se- um, centers um, to expose as many people as possible. Uh, the other side of it is, let's say, the service delivery, I should say. Um, one of the things that we're working on is, particularly in rural areas, is allowing VA to leverage telehealth. Um, and this is more of a state f- federal issue. You know, a doctor cannot practice medicine across state lines, even telehealth. Right. And so we have been asking for this fix now for, I don't know, a better part of three years. Mm-hmm. And, it requ- and there's no, there, there's very, this this problem is being worked. Yeah. Right? I'm not saying that it hasn't been solved and people are ignoring it. Right. We're very, very close to the actual language that will allow those groups that are interested, have a vested interest in this to be comfortable with whatever the solution will be. And really, it's to allow, like I said, any doctor from anywhere in the United States who is licensed and credentialed to practice whatever you know, field of medicine that they're practicing to deliver that that care in a different state. Right. Um, I think right now the limitation is that patient has to be in a federal facility as well. Right. I, I was going to ask about that because I, you know, in, in reading about this, that shocked me that that one of the the major benefits it seems of telehealth is that if you're having physical space requirements, uh, physical space problems, at, you know, with the VA. I know. I know there was. Um, uh, an issue that you had worked on where um, where uh, it required congressional approval for for um, the oh. VA to lead to lease facilities <laughs> sorry I, I'm sorry if I'm touching on a sore, sore spot but it, it required con- congressional approval for the VA to lease certain facilities and so there were these these physical space problems and, and one of the solutions it seems to the physical space issue and then also accessing the rural pop- population is to to be able to get service at home for a veteran, right. and what I didn't understand is, is you know, what what even is the origin of requiring a veteran to be in a federally owned facility because that essentially negates the whole purpose of the telehealth. Um, so I think first of all, you have to understand that as a clinical provider in a federal healthcare system. You have to be, like I said, licensed or credentialed in a state. Right. So even though you're licensed in Illinois, you can practice in Maryland in a federal facility. Mm-hmm. But if you're out in the private sector and I had an Illinois license, mm-hmm. I could not practice in Maryland. I had to get a Maryland license. Mm-hmm. So the Federal Supremacy Clause requi- allows a doctor licensed in any state to work in any state as so long as they're in a federal facility. That is the coverage. Oh, okay, okay, I see what you're saying. So it's state versus federal law, essentially. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and there's very little disagreement in that 
you know, these doctors should be able to practice across state line to leverage tele- right. telemedicine. Um, but you, you, one of the things that I think a, a lot of people may not appreciate is the VA is an incubator of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you a good example. VA had this home-based primary care program. It's not a VA-born idea. VA just made it national. It was a promising practice some in some little hospital somewhere that VA said, you know, that's a good idea. Let's pilot that. It was a great idea. It's a lot of savings, good clinical care, high patient satisfaction, managing the, the patient's um, conditions uh, very well without having the... Anyway, home-based primary care program. It's, medical, it's a medical team that goes to a, a, a patient's home mm-hmm. rather than having the veteran drive and you know make their way to a, to a hospital when they physically can't and manage them that way very closely this idea was put in the affordable care act innovator program as one of the first um, medicare demonstration programs to be tried out in the u.s on the u.s population that's just one example of what va has done had taken it as a at a very singular level made it a national program. So the same thing with telehealth. If this policy is is made, um, is authorized in the VA, it is a national program. Right. It's then that, it's, it's that one step closer to being a national policy, not just a VA national policy, but a national involving the trillion, the, yeah. I don't know how many people we have in this country. Yeah. yeah. To, to, you know, two yeah. point whatever. Yeah. But the, is, is that is that where you, is that where you um, sort of spur the opposition to this? You know, like if this is successful at the VA, are there stakeholders who have uh, an interest in making sure that this doesn't get transferred um, to, to a national program? Well, I, I don't know if it... But I guess, yes. There are there are interests involved. Right. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and, and, and I don't want to label it as a self, you know, like a... Like, an, like, a, um, like they have an agenda. Yes, they mm-hmm. have an agenda because they... they these groups co- have, these cons- have these ideas mm-hmm. of a certain policy because of their history, because right. of what they've learned. These right. are learned individuals. Right. Yeah. I don't mean to say that they want to stop progress. No, yeah. I think what they want to do is make sure that the progress, at the very least, especially in a clinical arena, does not hurt people. Right. And that's where they come from. So these, these, the working of this problem isn't from an adversarial, but it's from a, hey, we need to make sure we're, we, don't, we do it right. Right. Because we have people's lives at stake. Right. Yeah. If I were the veteran and, and you know Matthias were the doctor, for instance, <laughs> okay. um, you know, God, here yeah, we go. I know, and I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. Um, but yeah, if, if that were the case, what we're talking about is is I'm in Maryland and Matthias is in Texas, let's say, mm-hmm. and I need to access the care. I have to go to a federally owned facility in order to access the care because of state licensing requirements. Right. Um, it, and then what we're talking about here is, is making it such that I can stay at home and access the care. I can call Matias by, by staying at home. Is that the case? Yes. Okay. Anywhere so long as... And he doesn't have to be in a federal facility. Yeah. Right. That's, that's the big thing, right? Yeah. The federal facility allows the VA to operate despite state law. State right. law says right. within a state. Yeah. yeah. Right? Federal supremacy says 
eh, we'll lift it up as long as you're operating on a federal level. Yep. Practice anywhere. Right. But you have to be, yeah. because it's federal, yeah. have to be in a federal facility. Yeah, and, and just to articulate the, the importance of this, as it stands with, with, the, with the, the requirement that, that people go to a federal facility, mm-hmm. um, I think 12% of veterans already util, utilize the service. Mm-hmm. And so if you could break down these, these restrictions, you could potentially have a, a larger proportion a very significant proportion of, of veterans being able to access service this way. Yeah, absolutely, and and it and it's it's almost like the electronic health record, mm-hmm. where the efficiency of the electronic health record was estimated at one point to allow clinical f- efficiency of a compounded rate of two percent, mm-hmm. uh, and I think VA has maximized that now. Um, so. So which, that's what which this also to clarify is a big deal in terms of official overall levels of efficiency in terms of processing. Oh yeah, I mean it. Yes, it can be, right? There. Let me let me. So I'll get back to that yeah, in a second. Please. So, so yeah. So that's that's what it is, right? The veteran patient, the veteran population. Forty percent of the veteran po- population is in a rural area. They're rural residents. We have uh, a misalignment of resources to need in, in, in the medical delivery system. Not only is it a problem in VA, but it's, it's a problem in, in yes, across, across America. So if we can minimize this problem by allowing you know, doctors to, to practice really anywhere, um, the limit here is on on science now it's not it's not so much you know a physical restriction so now we're going to be asking uh, different questions is providing telemental health for you know for this condition clinically appropriate for that patient we we know telemental health works we know it delivers service we know it delivers service well we haven't gotten to the point where we're asking more specific questions, like, does it work for this condition for this veteran? You know, kind of like um, uh, genetic drugs, now, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Those are the questions we want to be asking, not should we yeah. do this anymore. Um, so, yeah, so your question about the electronic health records is a whole different matter altogether, right? Yeah. This, is, this is a medical tool. Right. It's like a stethoscope. Yeah. Right? This is not Outlook or Excel. This is a medical instrument, and like everything else, it gets very complex, right? So there's there's this one issue that we we've been trying to deal with, um, and and physicians in VA have been trying to deal with, the idea that electronic health records will help clinicians be more productive, is one important, but certainly not the only aspect to electronic health records. In the vein of wanting clinicians to be more efficient, we put in things like reminders, clinical reminders. Oh, this veteran is, for, is from the Persian Gulf War. Did you ask him about Persian Gulf War illness? You know, did you ask him about this, that, and the other? So now you have these hundreds of clinical reminders. So the first 10 minutes of a 30-minute appointment time, which is actually more than what you get in the private sector, which is about 20 minutes, VA, because veterans are tend to be far sicker. They have more conditions that they're dealing with, so they, they spend a little bit more time with them. The first 10 minutes of what otherwise should be a 30-minute appointment is about clicking through these. 
or yeah. minor. So, you know, what I'm saying is electronic health record has a lot of benefits. It can also become quite burdensome and, and unwieldy. And what happens is you lose sight, you know. So you get excited about having this new tool. You start pl changing things here, pl proliferating things here, and then all of a sudden you lose sight of the fact that this really is a medical instrument to help doctors visit with patients. Yeah. You know, become that learned friend and help them in their lives in some, some form of fashion. So we've got to make sure it doesn't get in the way. Right. Which is completely opposite from telemedicine, right? Yeah. I mean, right. We, can't, yeah, yeah. we can't leverage. Yeah. We need to leverage technology. <laughs> Electronic records is like, hold on. Right, yeah, yeah. We, need to, we need to constrain it so that it doesn't render things inefficient. Yeah. It doesn't kind of dehumanize the interaction between the, the patient and the doctor. Exactly. Is, uh, it's, yeah. Uh, so so I'm, I'm just generally this, I, I'm, I'm really glad that, I, I just want to say I'm really glad that, that, that we got this deep into the conversation because I think that, that one of the thing that's that one of the things that's missed, just generally speaking, and I, I speak for myself here as well, mm -hmm. is just the, the, the degree to which this, these are extremely complex issues, not just medically, and they're challenging enough, mm -hmm. but legally as well, yeah. in terms of trying to develop solutions that are concrete and sustainable over time. And not only that, uh, that I don't, I don't know if I think it's well-meaning that that we have this collective sense of outrage about inefficiencies in Veterans Affairs services, mm -hmm. but is it productive or counterproductive? And that's, I think, at a political level, a question that that we need to be asking ourselves: Do we need to do we need to give some political space? So that these very difficult problems can actually be be trialed and that kind of thing, so that we can actually find out some answers to these questions instead of banging on the table systematically and demanding that we fix things immediately. And I, mean, I think that that's something that you deal with on a on quasi daily basis in your activities. What's your sense around that? Yeah, you know, it's 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 a delicate balance, and it changes They're based on what the situation is. Right, but I th I think you're right. I think I think everybody who's involved, whether it's the veteran service organizations, or members of Congress, or the federal or the executive branch, um, I think everybody has a responsibility to the American public. Um, and sometimes we need to check our self-interest at the door for the betterment of you know, that one veteran. And, you know, sometimes things get, can get carried away. Um, and if that happens, I think everybody has a responsibility also to bring it back, uh, to make sure that we are not, um, you know, um, creating uh, public policy based on hyperbolic rhetoric. We want to make sure it's based on data, valid and sound evidence or the best evidence that we've got um, and instead of you know anecdotes yeah. and rhetoric so that, that I think is the biggest struggle it's what every academic and researcher struggles with you know I, have, I had this opportunity one time to speak to a, a number of researchers and and I asked them you know how do you feel about it when the, when politicians use your research um, and not the way it was intended. And he says, "Well, that's that's 
that's the rub. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? We don't, we ought not as researchers focus on what happens to our work in the political realm, but focus our work on the academic realm to make sure that we continue asking the right questions and, and finding better answers. And when though that evidence leaves that researcher's desk or the publisher's journal and enters the political sphere, that we make sure that it is used in the right manner. We had earlier talked about how to measure wait times. Yeah. We have evolved from saying 30 days is too long to saying that how long a veteran waits really is dependent upon what the clinician says and what the patient says. So I'll give you an example. I'm very worried about you, Matthias, because your last EKG showed some abnormalities, and I want you to do a stress test, and I need you to do it in the next couple of weeks. You say, well, doc, that's great. Thank you for letting me know. But in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to go visit my grandchildren. And come hell or high water, am I not going to do that in the next couple of weeks? <laughs> yeah. What say we do when I come back? Oh, perfect. Let's do it in the third week. Let's make sure you're set up. You take that out of context, and you see a veteran had to wait three weeks for a stress mm. test because of a, a, you know, a heart, a, a, an abnormal reading. Somebody says, oh, that's horrible. Yeah. We, we got to make this right. We got to hold that clinician accountable. Yeah. Hold on. Right? So we have a different optic there. Right. And now we're creating policy. We're demanding accountability. We want to get people fired because of a situation where it was completely reasonable for that veteran to, quote, unquote, wait for three weeks to be stress tested. Mm-hmm. So, so if I can ask about the, the way you translate that in your work, because oftentimes you have to show up before a, a congressional committee and, and explain these sorts of things to them. And, and a lot of times, you know, it, if you ever turn on C-SPAN, it, it can get really bogged down in, in you know, list, list me the statistics that, that yeah. prove to me that this is a problem. How in your work do you manage to communicate both the urgency of the need to fix certain systems and then also the need to, to kind of um, do what you were, you know, describe a system that you were just describing where it's centered on the patient and the provider themselves? So I, I, th- I think in this scenario, the, 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 biggest, um, the biggest problem that needs to be solved is trust. Mm-hmm. I think when the wait time issue came up, in Phoenix, the mismanagement, the manipulation, the, the rhetoric, the, the optics of a dysfunctional, uh, you know, inefficient bureaucratic agency like the VA be- caused a rift in the trust of one branch of the government distrusting another branch of the government. Now, whether that trust was appropriately lost or not is a whole different discussion, but what we do have is a lack of trust. And I think until VA regains that trust from their overseers, the the legislative branch, then I think we are going to always have this hard time of convincing them, look, 
we need to be able to trust that one VA doctor to make the right call for that, their patient and say yes, three weeks was an appropriate time. So it's going to be a hard road to plow, but we're going to do it. We have to do it because without trust, without common ground, we cannot build something better. And I think that is the single biggest problem that we, veterans, the Veterans Service Organization, Congress, and they have to solve. If we are to move beyond this and make VA this nation's answer to taking care of veterans. service not just um, not just in the service but you know all the advocating that you do and have done for 17 years you know thank you for that well I'm glad you guys are uh, sharing this and talking about it I really appreciate it That right there speaks for itself. We are incredibly thankful to Mr. Avizado for spending this time with us and helping us get into all of these issues. Um, we wanted to thank him and thank you for listening. Uh, we hope you really enjoyed it and learned a lot in this uh, in this episode. Uh, I want to remind you that this is one of nine in the Washington, D.C. series, and so you can find the rest of it by going to BUCommonThread.com if you're not already there, or by going to the iTunes store and searching The Common Thread Podcast. You have to type in all the words, The Common Thread Podcast, and you can find the rest of the D.C. series. Uh, thanks so much, and we'll look forward to talking to you the next time. Thank you.